Hello, my name is Norma. Um, when Dave asked me to do this reading, at first I thought, no way. <laughs> I don't like speaking in a crowd, but I said I'd pray about it, and so I did. And Philippians 4.13 says that I can do all things. So here I am. <laughs> the reading today is 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is a good man, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immortality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her marriage rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may have that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. <clears throat> now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I, am, as I myself am, and each has his own right, his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is a good thing for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn in hell. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your life, your wife? And this is the word of the Lord. And it's not my word and it's not your word, but it's God's word. Thanks, Norma. <laughs> yeah. I'm grateful for uh, fellow crosspointers who, uh, who walk by faith, literally across the stage and, uh, and read scripture, and for a gracious scripture reader who, uh, who said yes and then got stuck with that passage. <laughs> and who said, okay, I'll, I'll keep doing it, so... Thanks, Norma. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, open it up to that passage. 
Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, looking at the first 16 verses. We finish up chapter 7 next week, and then we'll pause until January, 9th, or January 8th and uh, do uh, look at some other passages in the coming weeks. In today's section, uh, Paul addresses some questions that the Corinthian church had regarding marriage. Questions such as, what about sex within marriage? Uh, what about those who are unmarried and widows? <clears throat> and also, Paul uh, teaches us about divorce and remarriage and how does a uh, believing spouse relate to an unbelieving spouse and, you know, not big, complex questions, really simple ones. And Paul addresses all of those questions in, in about 400 words. Uh, it's going to take me more words uh, than 400 to, to, uh, to explain what Paul is talking about here. And yet at the same breath, there's going to be plenty of things left on the table that we're not going to be able to talk about uh, because of time. There are uh, three big subjects talked about. In this first one, I'll spend the vast majority of my time. Uh, but there's things left on the cutting room floor, if you will. And I pray that God's word, we believe it's timely. We believe it's relevant. We believe it's true, living, and active. And uh, no matter your marital status, if you'll notice in this passage, the Lord has something to say to us. And I pray that we would be uh, open to that and to be changed by, by the truth of God's word. So we're going to jump right in. Verse 1, now in response to the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. If you remember from the past uh, couple chapters of the letter, Paul has been dealing with the subject of sexual immorality and calling the people of God to flee from it. And so what is in quotes there is a statement that has been made by the Corinthian Christians. And on its own, we say, yes, that statement is good. But what we find out is that some in the church had misunderstood Paul's words to flee sexual immorality and had wrongly assumed that all sexual activity, even that within a covenant marriage between a husband and a wife, was sinful. So in the coming verses, Paul corrects that misunderstanding in the church and points them toward God's design for marriage and the gift that sex is within the context of marriage. Listen to the previous two chapter, or the previous two sentences that led into chapter 7. Because remember, originally this is one flowing letter, not separated by chapters or verses. So the previous two sentences, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. Well, we glorify God with our bodies, not simply by avoiding sexual immorality, but also by enjoying God's gift of sexual relations in the holy context of marriage. And then verses 2 through 4. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. In those three sentences, I want you to see the mutuality, the other-orientedness of how Paul describes a marriage. In chapter 6, Paul quoted Genesis 2 that says this regarding marriage, that the two will become one flesh. A husband and wife joined in covenant marriage, no longer operating as individuals, but living out as a one flesh union. A union that is seeking to glorify the Lord who created the very design of marriage. And one area of marriage that we 
we seek to bring the Lord glory is in sexual intimacy. And so how does the Lord glorified in this way? It's when the husband and wife seek the good of the other. When they live for the other. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 says, doing nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility, considering others as more important than yourselves, looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, that, that verse applies in a variety of relationships, including the context of marriage. And so what Paul's laying out here in 1 Corinthians is a countercultural picture to how the world views sex. For instance, the world says sexual relations is all about you. It's all about you, the individual, what you can get out of it. It's about you in the bedroom. The other person is simply a means to the end. It's a self-centered view. The picture that Paul has here is completely other-oriented. The husband is seeking the good of the wife. The wife, the good of her husband. So it's not you owe me, but it's I owe you. It's not about what I can get. It's about what I can give. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, right, my spouse does owe me. I'm thanks, thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> Loved one, it's so easy to turn marriage into a contract, is it not? Where you only respond when the other person has done their part, whatever you fill in the blank there for their part, where in a sense you're passive and you wait on the other person to go first. And then you might reciprocate. Or if you've been sinned against, then you're justified to sin against them because it's a contract, or so we think. Heather and I have sinned against one another in our marriage. That's an obvious statement. We are sinners. We are not free from sin. We live together. It's the obvious statement for any marriage. It's easy for the sinned against spouse to then withhold intimacy until the other person has, in a sense, worked their way out of the hole that their sin has dug. Speaking for our marriage, some of our sweetest times of intimacy has been following times of sin and confession and repentance when according to the law the other person didn't deserve it but brothers and sisters a gospel-centered marriage is not a contract it's a covenant a covenant that has at its core the understanding of grace not law because jesus first loved and served and forgave us and so we in turn seek to love and serve and forgive one another including in marriage including with those closest to us if you go home today and you quote part of this passage to your spouse honey fulfill your marital duty to me i don't think it's going to go well for you <laughs> secondly that's not what paul's saying here that's not what he's recommending it's not what he's teaching paul is calling our marriages to look different than the world consider the term of rights that paul uses verse 4 a wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. And if we stop there, that fits the narrative of Paul's day, let alone our day. In our dark and depraved world, some might hear this passage and think it's prescribing abuse or slavery or some sort of wickedness that has been around since Genesis 3. If we're interpreting it that way, then we're missing the clear mutuality and other-orientedness tone of this passage Paul is saying the type of lover that brings the, the most glory to God and the good and joy to their spouse, let alone themselves, is a humble one. Is a humble one. Not a self-centered one. A lover who's seeking the good of their spouse, the second half of verse 4, in the same way, a husband does not have, right, does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. 
In many ways, the idea that the wife has rights is a radical teaching in the context of Paul's day. Because it was a culture that was built on male sexual dominance where the women's needs were rarely, if ever, considered. And Paul is putting the husband and wife on equal footing as it relates to sexual intimacy. And he's also saying that sexual satisfaction is is found not out there, but actually within the marriage. One commentary wrote, this biblical perspective is remarkably different from the Roman view that men were to take wives in order to have legal heirs, while sexual pleasure, if it was to be sought at all, would typically be found outside the marriage. Paul's saying, no, when the two become one, sexual pleasure is found within the context of marriage, the covenant of marriage. And that's completely counter to how the world tells us, how the devil whispers lies to us, our own flesh wants to lie to us. Someone has said that we either view sex as a god or as gross or as a gift. To some, sex is a god, albeit an extremely enslaving god. So it has your continual tension. You you run to it in dysfunctional ways to try to find your rest and retreat, to to try to find your identity. And this this so-called God promises to you excitement, pleasure, satisfaction, and then after another broken worship session, you are left with sin, guilt, condemnation, shame. C.S. Lewis said, lust is going after the body. Love is going after the person. And so when we see sex as our God, we're just going after lust. It's not about the person. It's not about loving them. It's about loving us. Others of you view, uh, view sex as gross. You could be thinking, I've never sat in a church service and heard the pastor say that word so much. Where are the exit doors? I thought this would be an Advent series on December 4th. <laughs> we were going to visit here today for the first time. Um, we're just preaching through the Bible. Uh, we will talk about Christmas, even at the tail end of this message, including later in this month, I promise. We did sing. So <laughs> so maybe depending on how you grew up or uh, you heard that sex was dirty or wrong or something you shouldn't talk about, let alone with your parents, and you have carried with you this idea into your marriage that sex is simply a marital obligation, it's a necessary requirement, like paying your mortgage. It's just another box to check. Maybe you're like the Corinthians, thinking sexual relations, even in marriage, is sin. It's, it's at least dirty in some way. Oftentimes, our bent towards seeing sex as either a god or as gross results from a broken past, possibly being sexually abused or taken advantage of in some significant or horrific way or exposed to porn early on in your childhood, and the endorphin release that uh, your body's gotten trained to, you become trained to. It's It's a habitual response that you go after that drug. You're not alone. I have a broken past, which I won't detail from this stage, let alone a live stream. If you want to buy me coffee, if you want to buy me lunch, you will be buying. I'm happy to share with you. But I will tell you that God's grace is greater than our sin. And that our past sin or sin committed against us does not define us. And that he is able to bring about 
healing and transformation thanks to the cross and, and resurrection. Heather and I, uh, my wife Heather and I, are an open book if you need to talk through anything. There are brothers and sisters here who would be an encouragement to you. And if you're like, I don't want to talk about anything that's been done to me or what I've walked through with anybody, with anybody in my local church, then still please reach out and let me direct you to kingdom, solid, biblical counsel in the greater kingdom. There's no shame in asking for help. You might think you're the first person to experience that kind of hurt. You're not. Or you think, well, I can't tell a pastor about that because it will shock them. Or I can't tell a brother or sister in Christ about them, about this, because it will shock them. It doesn't shock me. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. It's broken and groaning since Genesis 3. And our spiritual enemy would love for us to try to struggle against this in isolation. Don't settle for isolation and trying to fix it in your own strength. There's no extra gold stars or blue ribbons handed out at the end by doing it on your own. It's actually just more heartache. There's less and less healing, more and more heartache when you try to operate in your own strength, in isolation, trying to resolve things that were never intended to bring, bring about healing by yourself. The gospel is a gospel of freedom, and that's our heart for you. The third way that we can view sex is that as a gift from the Lord. We're in a month where gifts will be given and received, and in this way, we come to understand that the Lord is the one who created and fearfully and wonderfully made our bodies in such a way where we enjoy sex as a gift. We see it as a gift that is to be received, treasured, protected prior to marriage, enjoyed in the context of marriage, and passages such as Proverbs 5 or Song of Solomon, the entire book, specifically chapter 4, remind us of that gift. You can look at those later, not now. Stay with me, okay? The Lord is not a cosmic killjoy. He is not a providential prude in the sky. He is a good Father and who is for His people and called us to enjoy His gift within the bounds of His design, thus glorifying Him. That's where freedom, that's where rest and joy is truly found. Paul is called husbands and wives toward sexual relations, thus fulfilling one another. Verse 5, Paul goes on, do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The word for deprive can be translated rob or steal or cheat one another. So don't rob one another of sexual relations. Don't defraud your spouse. And when you do need to pause sexual relations, for whatever reason, Paul calls husbands and wives to two different actions. One is communication with one another. Paul is assuming you're going to talk about this subject, including agreeing when you are not going to have it. It can't be a subject off the table. It has to be a subject talked about as much as the kids, work, schedules, money, what's for dinner, what do you like in the bedroom? Like we got we to gotta put these things on the same level. We can't, he, I, hope it's, I hope you see this, that he's calling husbands and wives to communicate and talk about this. And not only that, but he also calls couples to pray with one another. Communication with the Lord. And why pray? Because husbands and wives, there's a real spiritual enemy who's out to destroy your marriage. 
Marriage is not his only target, but it's also not absent from his assault. And the enemy's schemes include trying to get you to think that sex is either gross or a god to be worshipped. And so one way marriages combat spiritual warfare is through sexual intimacy with one another. It's a God-given gift with multiple purposes, including that of a guard against sexual immorality. Now, you can't say, well, because we're not intimate on a regular basis, then I was justified in my lustful thoughts and actions. You can't say that. You can't justify your sin with external actions. Nor can you say that having regular intimacy within your marriage doesn't help you fight the schemes of the enemy. Sexual intimacy in marriage does battle against the devil. It's spiritual warfare. It does battle. And another way we combat spiritual warfare is through prayer with one another. Some couples are more comfortable taking off their clothes with one another than praying with one another. And that's a problem. That's a problem, loved ones. It's not an either or. It's, not, it's a both and. For some of you, your next step from today has nothing to do with sex. It has everything to do with praying out loud with one another. Praying out loud with one another is, a, it is vulnerable because it reveals the heart. And what better action could there be to build spiritual intimacy with one another than heart-revealing prayer, thus spilling over and building physical intimacy? They build off one another, my friends. They're not silos. They build off one another. And so what do we pray for? Paul gives us one example, self-control. An example of the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5. And self-control is needed in times of abstinence. For instance, when, when in the midst of abstinence, we go looking outside of marriage, either in our minds or in our actions, it reveals a lack of self-control in our hearts. And so we pray, Lord, give us self-control. When we're trying to use abstinence or deprivation to try to manipulate our spouse, it reveals a lack of self-control in our hearts. Lord, give us self-control. According to the previous chapter, believers are temples of the, of the Spirit of God, so as a result, we are to be led by the Spirit, not the flesh, thus producing in us self-control that's glorifying to God and good to those closest to us. Verse 6. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. So Paul is not commanding all people to get married. So the unmarried Corinthians aren't listening to this letter going, okay, fine, I'll get married. Paul reminds them it's a gift from God to be married. It's a gift from God to be single, of which Paul was single himself. Now, at some point, scholars assume Paul was probably married, being a rabbi, being a part of the Sanhedrin. He was a member of, of the Sanhedrin, which had that requirement. And scholars assume one of two things happened. Either she passed, or he converted to Christianity, and she deserted him. Which, he will speak of that kind of example there at the tail end of this passage. Paul says, I wish that all people were as I am. Meaning there's a benefit to being single. Simply put, you have less interests of others to consider, right? My wife is laughing right now because I'm trying to consider her interest being married. If I was single, I wouldn't have Heather's interest to consider. And Paul is saying it's a gift to be single. It's a gift to be married and, and that the grass on the other side is not always greener. What should ground all people, those mar married and those unmarried? 
is our identity in Christ. So we're not chasing our identity in a marital status. So don't be the single thinking that if you'll get married, then you'll be fulfilled. Jesus alone is who fulfills us. He is our bread of life, according to last week's message. And don't be the married person thinking, well, if I get rid of him or her and I'm free again, then I'll be fulfilled. Jesus is our bread of life. A spouse or a marital status is not our Savior. Only Jesus. Verses 8 and 9, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. So Paul's not elevating one marital status as godlier or holier than another. It's good either way in the Lord's eyes. It's not about your marital status. It is about your spirit-led self-control no matter your marital status. And so Paul's recommendation to marry here is not based upon marriage being less or more spiritual, but on the practical concerns of sexual desire. That meeting sexual needs is to happen within the intimacy and safety of a husband and wife covenant marriage. One author wrote, if sexual desire is a chronic distraction and temptation disrupting the life lived out for the gospel, Paul advocates marriage. And that's not a sign of immaturity to want to get married again and have as one of your reasons as to enjoy that gift. Verses 10 and 11, Paul moves to continue to encourage marriages to the married. I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. According to Jesus in Matthew 5 and 19, Paul here in chapter 7 there are biblically acceptable and justifiable reasons for divorce, where divorce is permitted. It doesn't mean it's mandated. It doesn't mean it's required. It doesn't mean it's an automatic decision. Simply put here, permitted reasons for divorce, those being adultery and abandonment. And Paul is going to deal with the subject of abandonment in this passage. Uh, several years ago, we spent time as an elder team uh, trying to articulate our convictions around marriage and divorce and remarriage it's on our website, but I want to read these couple paragraphs, and I think that will help us understand what Paul is saying and not saying here. Marriage is a sacred institution ordained of God as a permanent and intimate relationship between one man and one woman. It's intended to endure until it's broken by the death of one of the partners. We believe the scriptures do not give liberty for a believer to marry a non-believer. We believe divorce is contrary to God's original intention and design for marriage. As a result, divorce is nowhere encouraged or required in the scriptures. Because reconciliation and forgiveness is central to the gospel message, it should be pursued with humility and zeal as opposed to divorce. Due to the hardness of the human heart, reconciliation may not always be possible. There are two cases in scripture where divorce, though not encouraged as a loophole, is permitted. When one of the partners in marriage has committed adultery or when a non-believing partner chooses to desert a believer even though the believing partner has been seeking to reflect the spirit of Christ in their relationship. A person who obtained a divorce under these provisions may enter another marriage relationship as the Lord leads. In light of the potential of gospel reconciliation, those obtaining a divorce for any other reason than those two situations in Scripture are encouraged to avoid remarriage until the death or remarriage of their first spouse. In these difficult situations that are often not black and white, anyone seeking remarriage is encouraged to seek godly counsel 
from the elder team and pastoral staff on how to proceed in a God-honoring way. For instance, those who have sought a divorce with a clear intent to remarry another would be seen as contrary to God's word. The goal of any action in these sensitive matters should be to glorify God in both the process and the outcome of dealing with broken relationships in a fallen world. Now, while Scripture does not address it specifically, I believe it's safe to say that destructive abuse is also a permitted uh, divorce, a reason for divorce. The Lord is not commanding you to remain in harm's way decades on end. And if you are walking through that, which it's only ramped up since spring of 20, and if you are walking through that, please reach out for help. Please reach out. The subject of abandonment is what Paul is speaking of here in this next section. A subject that, as far as, as, far as he knows, that Jesus did not deal with in his earthly teaching. And Paul is going to address a specific example where the Corinthians were prone to think divorce was an appropriate action the example being when a follower of Jesus is married to a person who is not yet a follower of him. Verses 12 through 16. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any person has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. So the Corinthians were wrongly thinking that when a marriage becomes unequally yoked, where a believer is married to an unbeliever, whether prior to marriage or at some point along the marriage, the Corinthians were assuming the Lord would permit and albeit encourage a divorce, to which Paul says at the end of verse 12 and 13 that he or she must not divorce their unbelieving spouse, that God can be glorified in such situations, specifically in how the believing spouse serves as a witness to an ambassador for Christ to the lost spouse. Notice in Paul's words here, there's a hopeful tone. There's an optimistic tone. Paul's not saying that the unbelieving spouse or the children are automatically saved by the marriage continuing. He is saying that when the marriage continues, that it does bring good to the unbelieving spouse and children, that it does bring a near, present, and relational gospel witness to people who the Lord is seeking and desiring to save. As a son-in-law, I I'm a part of a family tree that has been changed because a wife and then a husband sought to live this word out. God is able. At Christmas, we are reminded that Jesus is our Emmanuel, meaning he is our God with us, that, that as John 1 tells us, that Jesus took on flesh the eternal one took on flesh and made his dwelling among us we serve a relational god who has come to heal the sick and set the captive free find the lost rescue the dying comfort the broken adopt the orphan and as a people who are formed our god doesn't depart the people that he brings near but he dwells inside and with his people 
He's near. And brothers and sisters, he is with us, including as we seek to glorify God in the intimacy of marriage, in any marital status that we have, and including in marriages where one spouse is praying for and pursuing the salvation of the other. You're not alone. There's more to say on these subjects in this text. If you need encouragement, if you need counsel, please reach out. There are people here who have walked and are walking out this passage well for the glory of God. He is with you. He is with me. He is with us. He is alongside his people. He has brought us to himself and brought us toward one another in the family of God. So we might glorify God with our bodies and with the whole of our lives. We're going to move into a time of communion. And if you're a believer in and follower of Jesus, you are welcome to take communion with us. This morning, alongside fellow brothers and sisters who are confessing that Jesus is our Emmanuel, that he was born to die ultimately and rise again to be our hero, to be our Messiah, our Savior. Our First Impressions team members will be passing out the trays. You just need one of the cups, the wafers on the top there. I encourage you during our time of prayer to be opening that up, and then we will take the elements together. We will remember the broken body and the spilled blood together as the family of God, and then we'll head back into worship. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the juice. As we go into this next worship set, uh, we are going give to our, give our offering uh, here in this next song. If you're a guest with us, please don't feel obligated to give, but this is an opportunity for us to, uh, to worship in that way. Lord Jesus, thank you for being near and for being with us. Thank you for making a way and being the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for being the faithful bridegroom of the church, for laying down your rights taking on flesh, living a life of perfect obedience, and yet dying for sin, our sin, not yours. And thank you for rising again on the third day. Thank you that you're still alive and active and at work in our lives and our world. Thank you for healing the sick, setting the captive free, finding the lost, rescuing the dying, comforting the broken, adopting the orphan. Thank you that by your wounds, we have been healed and we continue to be healed. Be glorified in our bodies. Be glorified in our self-control. Be glorified in our lives. Thank you for being with us in all things, in all seasons, in all of life. We pray this in the powerful and good name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew 1, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he, he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. 
See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will, call, they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us.